the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit, man that's quite warm and got his windows open so you might be able to hear the planes flying overhead. Well, have I got a curious and informative episode for you this week. Earlier in the week, Anand Menon, director of UK Interchanging Europe and I, went along to the Swiss Embassy in London to talk to Alexandre Faisal, like my pronunciation, the ambassador there. Now, Switzerland is an interesting example for Brexit. It is outside the EU and perhaps provides an example for the UK to follow in terms of having a relationship with the EU as what they call a third country. It's also had a number of referendums on the EU, various aspects of the EU on uh, linking up with the EU on similar terms to Norway, and that comes up in the podcast, on joining the EU and on ruling out ever joining the EU, making it a a constitutional principle that Switzerland will never join the EU. So we have EU referendums in common, though it's worth pointing out that in Switzerland they have a tradition of having regular referendums on all sorts of stuff. So the EU referendums weren't quite such a big deal as ours was. So lots of interesting stuff to discuss. Brexit. But the big question you're all asking is when you go to an embassy, will the ambassador spoil you with a big plate of Ferrero Rocher? Well, surprisingly, yes, uh, sort of. Join me uh, after the chat in my outro for an excellent sort of outtake, um, which involves uh, the ambassador and a big plate of chocolates. But first, here's Anand getting the conversation underway in, uh, well, typically blunt Yorkshire style, to be honest. Uh, enjoy and uh, join me after this chat. Surely the truth of it is we've made your life a lot harder because you're continuing a negotiation with the European Union at the moment. And it seems to me that the European Union's position has toughened in those talks, not least because they've got an eye on us and what we might seek to gain from any sign of weakness on their part. Brexit has an impact on us. Of course it has. It does not only impact the UK and the EU, it does directly impact also uh, all the countries that, uh, the third countries that have preferential trade agreements with the EU. So it does impact us. And and our answer uh, to that was this mind the gap strategy, what yep. the British side calls the continuity dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there we, we've done our work and we are now having exploratory talks whether we could even go further and further develop, enhance, broaden our relationship. So that's one direct impact. Then there is another direct impact you are getting at, uh, which is we find ourselves in a permanent negotiation with the EU and now in a, a important phase of a negotiation on the uh, on what we call a institutional framework agreement which would govern our 
bilateral, many bilateral agreements we have with, with the EU. That negotiation is finished. We are now in the phase of the internal domestic debate on it. But at the beginning of Brexit, this discussion was still going on. Mm. And, and of course, Brexit then has uh, had and still has an impact on that as well, because the question is the same. It's the same dilemma the British have and we have, which is uh, to balance your interests in terms of market access on, on the one hand and the projection you have of your sovereignty on, on the other hand. Mm. So that's the problem we have with the EU as a third country. That is the problem uh, Britain has or the question Britain has to deal with. And, and so the EU is faced with the same question from two different sides and they will, of course, want to adopt a consistent way how mm. they deal with that and that mm. then commands um, their, their behaviour. You can see how it is interrelated in the rhythm of the talk. Sometimes we felt it was going a bit easier and quicker. Uh, faster and then it would slow down again and so on and so forth and you can also see it in substance the uh, in the withdrawal agreement the institutional part of it uh, corresponds uh, more or less to yeah. what we Swiss, have in yeah. our institutional agreement mm. one way of looking at it is now switzerland's got a big new chum who you can now two of you can go to the eu and say this is what we want the other way, of course, is that the EU will just deal with Britain and Switzerland will have to sort of yeah. jog along with yes. whatever's agreed. I, I, I know your argument and it is an argument that is frequently discussed in, in the Swiss polity uh, as, as well. The difference is that we have agreements in place mm -hmm. and want um, to further develop them on the basis of an institution framework agreement. Mm -hmm. The British haven't yet their future relationship in place and must first negotiate it. So the, the argument in Switzerland is uh, you have, you know, on one side people say now is the time that we uh, have to find a solution around what has been negotiated with the institutional on the institutional framework agreement, uh, providing there are further clarifications because we had a uh, public consultation uh, with all the stakeholders in Switzerland, and there are uh, three problems left we should further further discuss. But we should, you know, that is the instrument to safeguard and further develop our bilateral way, and others say why don't we it, there is no urgency let's just wait for the british and because they are a country of such a magnitude and importance uh, they will uh, have another deal and we may benefit from uh, that deal so that is a debate we're having in in switzerland uh, but we do know that um, this is our relationship with the EU and we have to look at the end of the day we have to look after uh, ourselves yeah. and that's what we are trying to do together with the EU. Um, a couple of things that are worth pointing out one is that Switzerland does a remarkable amount of trade with the UK mm -hmm. um, perhaps more than people might expect mm -hmm. it's quite significant isn't it? Oh it is. And secondly I mean, exactly what you're talking about Anand are wonks like you not poring over the Swiss example to find a read across to the UK, or is that far too simplistic? 
Some are. I mean, the problem with the Swiss example is there are so many treaties, it's so messy and it's so complicated. But isn't that inevitable when you're dealing with the EU? That's what we have Catherine Barnard for. <laughs> All right, but the point is, well, but isn't that the lesson to take away? Exactly, Switzerland is it complicated having a relationship with the EU when you're not in it. Well, it's and complicated. The UK having... really ought to look at Switzerland and go, it's complicated. Well, instead of all these, let's just call them people going around saying, oh, it'll be easy. We'll just walk out and we'll just make a deal and all this. Sort of well, stuff. there are lots of different ways of having a relationship with the EU, from a very distant one to a very close one. There are different ways of having a close relationship. So the Norwegian model is different to the Swiss model because it's not a, a lot of bilateral treaties, but. Actually, the interesting thing about the Swiss model is not the fact that we might find it complicated. It is, and Mr. Ambassador, I'd be interested to know what you said, because I think it is that the European Commission on no account whatsoever wants to replicate the Swiss-type agreement with anyone else because they find it appallingly complicated, administrative, bureaucratic. They want something simple and they don't want to replicate that mm. with us. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. This is what you keep hearing about by in, in some quarters in Brussels that our system is cumbersome, yeah, um, and that it is not on offer uh, in in, in, the, in for for any other third countries. Uh, we think our system, the, the Swiss way, the Swiss method, is a good approach. It allows us uh, to have make this trade off and this arbitrage. But we are not um, evangelists of it. That, that is <laughs> our system to deal with it. And as a matter of fact, all the agreements with all the countries are always bespoke. Yeah. So there is no one size fits all in, in no instance uh, when it comes to uh, EU third country treaties. But is it true to say your agreement lets you cherry pick? I would never say that, no. <laughs> This is one of the criticisms uh, that is addressed uh, uh, to us, yeah. that we are uh, cherry-picking. I don't think we are cherry-picking. We uh, contribute a lot uh, to, the, to European integration by this dense system of agreements we have, by integrating as far as we can into the single market, mm -hmm. by being one of the main north-south corridors of, um, of Europe, by providing first-class uh, transport infrastructures with the longest uh, tunnel, railway tunnel in, in, in the world and, and top-class uh, motorways, by contributing to the uh, economic and social cohesion um, of the EU on our terms, but still uh, contributing. So we're not cherry-picking. And then the other criticism is uh, we uh, are um, uh, we're having our cake and eating it. Uh, uh, you know, nah, nah, you're and, having and, your total already there, to get sure. And there, I, I don't agree with that uh, neither. The agree if we have those many agreements, it is because it was felt by Switzerland and the EU uh, that there was a mutual benefit in having them. Mm -hmm. and, and so it grew, it grew organically over uh, the years. What our approach shows is that it is a very long process and it grows organically. Okay. What it also shows in my view is the following thing. I have this formula, which is a bit a silly formula, but still, 
the only way for a European third country to solve the European question once and for all is to be a member mm -hmm. of the EU. If you're not, <laughs> if you're not, the question is there. And this trade-off is never found and set in stone uh, once and forever. It's just a, 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 a It's just in that moment or for some years to come, mm. it's good. And then you have constantly to readapt because the EU is not a state of affairs, it is a process. It always evolves, evolves, evolves. And so you risk as a third country, if you want to be part or have very close relationship with the EU and, and notably the single market, there is a risk of disconnection, that you are disconnected from it. So you always need to keep up and to find this new balance. And this is a permanent state of negotiation. That's a negotiation that never stops and it is a permanent state of negotiation in a asymmetrical relationship. And the big one is the EU and the small one uh, is you. In the case of Switzerland, this is readily apparent. Mm. But toute proportion gardée, this is also the case for the UK. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. Maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson. You never know. When we rejected in 1992 the Norwegian model, yeah, and because we negotiated that, yeah. and then we thought it was not good enough, and yeah. we did not want to join, um, by a tiny margin, as we just said. Then, back then in 1992, opinion polls showed that approximately half of the electorate would want to join the EU outright, right. as a full-fledged member. Yeah. Today. That figure is down, according to the polls, somewhere between 9 and 11 percent. Mm. Okay. okay. And what is the mechanism that explains that? I think there are two elements. One element is what I said before. You find yourself in a permanent state of negotiation, in an asymmetrical relationship. So you don't always get what you want. Mm -hmm. And that is felt as being frustrating. And uh, some will say, and you start having this here, humiliating, and they don't respect us, and so right. so forth. Huh? So, and that solidifies an anti-European yeah. sentiment, yeah. Uh, because then you have the projection, the bad, the bad one must be the other one. Yeah. The other one is not necessarily bad. The other one is just constitutionally inflexible. That, yeah. that comes with the nature of the EU. But anyway, the feeling then is that. And that solidifies, that's the first element that solidifies this uh, anti-European sentiment. And the second element is, because it is a permanent state of negotiation, every now and again you find satisfactory results in the, in the mutual uh, benefit. And so you conclude yet another treaty. And every time you have a new treaty on top of the other ones, and we have 120 plus, that in turn alleviates the pressure towards outright okay. membership. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in yeah. the first place. Okay, and so those two elements yeah. have uh, led to a situation um, we have in Switzerland where uh, it is um, where the, 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 uh, the, the pro-European uh, sentiment saying we should join the EU has, has shrunken so, uh, so starkly. And I, I wonder whether that will be the situation here, that yeah. in one generation time, it will be 80-20 and not 52-48.
What's, if, what's your view on that, Anand? I mean, there's two interesting things, aren't there? Firstly, because we're weird, leaving the European Union has made us more pro-EU than we ever were. I mean, we have this movement now that didn't exist beforehand. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that Remainers are far more passionate about their cause than Leavers are now. Uh, in many ways. So you've got this movement, and I don't know what happens to after we leave. Maybe they get bored and move on. Doesn't that speak to, to what's happened in Switzerland, if you like? Then? You say the Leavers are less uh, committed, if you like, because it just becomes normal and it's just a thing and it happens. Um, Possibly. And, and you, you get Swiss, that fade Swiss, away to, to. The Swiss experience would be that the. Uh, uh, I mean, we call them Leavers, huh? Let's say. Yeah. Because the debate is the same, yeah. so it's a yeah. very, very comparable. It's the same dilemma as we have seen, and and so and very comparable uh, arguments on on either side. Um, it's the leavers or the Eurosceptics yeah. that remain steadfast in their beliefs, and it is the mm. Euro-friendly segment of the population that mellows. That's that's our experience. See, I think ours might be just the opposite. That's the, that's a Swiss experience. Britain used to be. The democracy, mother of parliaments. Britain is the mother of parliaments, right? Mm. Not Westminster, Britain, England, or something. Uh, you know, and it was the most stable democracy in Europe. And we used to laugh at the Italians and go, ah, look at them, they were their new, weak new government. And now, surely, Switzerland is the best democracy in Europe because ours has gone completely mad. You claiming that title? No. Why not? not Switzerland because... is the best democracy in Europe. Well, Who's it's, better? It's the best for us. Who's no, better? No, in Switzerland, our democracy is the best in the world. And in Britain, your democracy is no, probably no, no, no. the best Nobody in the world. Nobody can claim British democracy what? is the best in the world. It's gone uh, mad. Have you been following? It's gone completely crazy. Yes. But, what, but how, how, what how do you do that? We're about to have a prime minister who's not been elected. It's insane. We do that all the time. But that's, no, your, that's what the constitution says. Yeah, and it's been found out, it's been stretched and found out to be rubbish by the Brexit process. Our constitution is not fit for purpose. Why? That's what we found. Surely. Why? Because look at the chaos, it's not working. We're dealing with something that divides public opinion, it divides MPs, it's going to be a fight. I mean, I, I, what I see, I see possible what set of rules could it be easy? I couldn't. Uh, how is it in, in House of Cards? You may think that I couldn't. <laughs> I could possibly <laughs> comment. All right. But, but I, I, see, I see your point. The question is, how does a polity deal with uh, divergences within its society? How you organise society in a political way. Right. How, how do you uh, bring a country uh, uh, together? And there we have our rules and you have yours. And now as a continental uh, uh, citizen and, and uh, a lawyer by upbringing, um, it is a very fascinating uh, concept to have a constitution that is not written. Yeah. But I'm not condemning it. I'm, I'm just trying right. to understand. Right. So you may say, or others say, this is mad, or, or the speaker cannot do this or not do that. But then you can also argue, if, if I understand your system correctly, the constitution is what you have always done. And if the situation is such that you, there is no precedent, uh, and no convention and no agreement, yeah. then the constitution is what you do. And so some right. uh, say possibly now it's a bit strange what we're doing, but when we will be back uh, to a uh, 
a, a political situation that fits the Westminster system, that is with one solid majority, then everything will come into place again. And now you rewrite, you write the rules of your constitution as you go forward in a situation uh, that the system, um, obviously the adversarial Westminster system has difficulties dealing with. And, and my hypothesis is that the only system, the only way the Westminster system deals with the country which is utterly divided in a way which does not respect the fault lines between the traditional political tribes, but cut across, cuts mm -hmm. across parties, mm -hmm. regions, yeah. socioeconomic yeah. groups, families, couples, and so on and so forth. Yeah. The only way Westminster deals with that, in my observation, is to have a hung parliament and utter uncertainty about the outcome of the next general election. That leads to a situation where everybody is still behaving in the Westminster way, very adversarial, yeah. but nobody pushes the envelope yeah. uh, quite that far as to go over, over the cliff. And I think I, this hypothesis has been proven right in the negotiation, where you had a zooming into the central ground yeah. uh, for, for the result of the withdrawal agreement, and it has proved wrong it has proved right, I think, up until the resignation of, of the Prime Minister with the, the, um, the withdrawal agreement, with the um, amendments or, or additions brought in uh, unilaterally, but after a conversation with the opposition party, mm. uh, is, uh, is again a moving to the central ground. So this is, I, I, I observe, the way... Uh, Britain, uh, the British constitution deals with yes. that situation. But I cannot tell you or cannot anticipate how it will go f further because I can't go, you know, my, my reflex would be to go and then read the constitution and, and see and uh, see what the yeah, mechanism okay. is and then, and then deduct from that where the policy will go. Here, it's the other way around. And so I don't know. Okay, well, let me ask you both a question on that basis then, right? I've had enough of uh, Brexit and British politics. There's a book called that. Oh, there is indeed. Is very, very, good oh, right, okay. very, very right, good. I've had enough of Brexit, not the book, but the oh, concept no. of Brexit and the British politics, right? So I am declaring independence in my house, right? I'm declaring an independent state in my house in South East London, and I need a constitution. Am I going to base it on the Swiss system or on the British system? Which one am I going to pick if I'm setting up a new country? Well, most countries... Oh, come on, it's the Swiss one all the way, isn't it? Because the British system's mad. Well, it's not a binary choice. Most countries... Oh, I know. I'm not actually setting up a state in my house. No, I mean, I'm see. not actually that crazy. But, it, but there, if there it was, again. as a hypothetical... You're a, a wonk, you love hypotheticals. Well... Which would you I choose? you're just massively oversimplifying this. I think. Well, yes, I am, but that's to prove a point. What's the point? Well, the, the British system is not as good as the Swiss Why not? I mean, our system has worked pretty well for an awfully long time. Yeah, but it's not now. I mean... The battery in my car keyring worked really well for a long time, issue, and now it's not, so it's useless. With, the issue with our system isn't the constitution, this is a lack of a majority in parliament. It's an electoral issue, not a constitutional issue. Are you issue really going into bat for British politics at the moment? You really yeah, think it's absolutely. working? Yeah. You actually think it's working? Yeah. Is there a bit in your book where you say it's not working? I think our I wish politics, I could remember. I think I our politics very nicely reflects the fact that we're a country divided down the middle, and if parliament wasn't at war with itself, it would be weird. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. 
uh, it's time to do uh, recommendations, isn't it? What would you have you got a recommendation, Anand? Or well, did, we'll he, did you have time to, to think first, of one? Well, yeah, yes. sometimes I have to let you think of one. Well, okay. no, I've got one actually, have you? which is, and it's not even direct. I've just found it fascinating. I'm not sure what the relationship with Brexit is yet, but I've been watching that series on Margaret Thatcher. Yes. On the BBC. I've written a column about that the first week. It's really good, isn't it? And it's just fantastic. I mean, it takes you back yeah. in all sorts of weird ways. You find us yes. giggling at the weatherman. There were some funny clothes uh, in the 70s, wasn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. But it's just been brilliant. We've only watched the first episode so far. Oh, that's the I best one. I recommend right? it. Because the 70s is mad. I've got to episode yeah. three. Previous but, guest, Michael Heseltine, doesn't come out of that series very well. There was that. an awful lot going on in the 1970s <laughs> watching that yes. first episode. It's fascinating. Yeah. And um, my column is about leadership. Um, oh. I think the second one you'll see, particularly... Maggie is a leader. You know, whatever you might say about what she did, yeah. she's in charge of the country. And you realise we have not had a prime minister in this country who was genuinely in charge since Tony Blair. Who yeah. actually And of course leads. what's interesting in the first episode is that I think it's Hesseltine who says she was never a leader, which I found odd given what happened afterwards, but we'll see. Hesseltine comes out really episode. bad. <laughs> That's a very good recommendation, mainly because I like it as well. Um, Ambassador, what would you recommend to us to understand Brexit? Um... It is a challenge, but a very fascinating one. So, and, and probably you don't find a satisfactory explanation if you apply, you know, political logic to it or or, or cold analysis of mm. interests. They, you, you know, the answer is not there. Uh, you uh, and yet you feel that it is something which is very very profound. Mm. Uh, as your example, when you say when your old mates in the Yorkshire pub said it's your frigging GDP, yeah. they're not in, into economics, but that, that, it, it translates something which is very profound. Mm -hmm. So you probably have to turn what we call Geistesgeschichte, the, the, the history of ideas, yeah. and then literature for that, of mm -hmm. course, is, is, is a very important element in shaping identities, narratives, projections mm -hmm. of a society as, as an entity. Mm. And and so there is this wonderful book by John Sutherland, The Good Brexiteer's Guide to English Lit, <laughs> which okay. uh, uh, goes back to you know very early English uh, literature up up to this day, okay. and and um, shows um, deeply ingrained reflexes and beliefs and and behaviors. Of, of the British and by reading that and it has it, it, and then with extracts um, from proposed literature um, that explain you know the leaving side and, mm. and the remain uh, remain side Interesting. And so yeah. I, I find it utter, utterly utterly stimulating Good recommendation there from Anand. If he's got to the third episode of the Thatcher documentary by now, he'll have spotted more Brexit-related things. At the 84 Tory conference, there's two massive flags on the conference set. One Union Jack, of course, and one EU flag, both of equal size. How things change. Hard to, well, it's impossible to imagine such a thing at a Tory conference these days. So I promised you a Ferrero Rocher moment at the embassy, didn't I? Well, here's what happened. As me and Anand sat down, a sort of butler in a jacket and pinstripe trousers came into the room we were recording with, with a tray of chocolates. Here's the ensuing nonsense. 
Yeah. Take your pick of. Uh, yes, please. That's right. I'll take that. Yeah. There we go. No, we then... leave them there. Thank you. And so we have. Thank so you. Th look, this Let's is try not too loud banging. Who's that? That's a uh, chocolaty Swiss. And then this is Lindt <laughs> yeah. and Sprüngli. Oh. Shouldn't you have Ferrero Rocher? Lindt? My goodness. <gasps> you just swore you'd done a swear I word. I take offense. Oh, oh you that's just, Italian. I think we're going to get thrown out ambassador. now. Have no. you started have yet? Have you not you seen the adverts? <laughs> yes, but th th that's, that's, that's uh, uh, that is racist against ambassadors. That's advert. And the ambassador was very generous with his chocolates. When I went to take a couple of the lint chocolates for my kids at the end of the recording, he just emptied the tray into my bag. So thank you to him. What a nice man. Have you ever been to an embassy and been offered a Ferrero Rocher? If so, get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter, or my website is james-miller.com, and you'll find the whole list of recommendations from all three series of this podcast there. So if you don't understand Brexit by the end of that, uh, you know, I don't know if I can help you really. Um, if you want to get in contact with the UK and Changing Europe, they are at UK and EU on the Twitter, or their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. The music has been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra again. And this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and Changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for another podcast. Thank you and goodbye.